This is a sermon podcast of the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org. All right, Esther chapter 5, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week in our time together. <clears throat> we are um, kind of halfway through the book, and now the events are, are kind of unfolding in a rapid pace. We spent three or four chapters just preparing the story. We're trying to figure out the history. We're trying to figure out circumstances. We're learning individuals, and, and now we, we know what's happening. You've got a, a king who is so self-absorbed. You have a queen who was uh, who just kind of placed by God's uh, providence. You've got an uncle, Mordecai, who... Uh, is doing his duty as a faithful citizen, but also looking out for his his people. And you have a wicked Haman who is the product of God's people not honoring uh, the command of the Lord in, 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 in time gone by. And um, so that's the circumstance. Tonight's lesson is, is this. Trust the direction that God gives through the practice of spiritual disciplines. Trust the direction God gives through the practice of spiritual disciplines. I'm actually going to reword it uh, when we put the notes up. I'm going to have it reworded, and it's going, to, it's going to sound a little bit differently. I think it sounds better to say practicing spiritual disciplines will help you to trust the direction God gives you. Practicing the spiritual disciplines will help you to trust the direction God gives you. In other words, we're going to see in this chapter that Esther had to act in a very bold way, in a way that could have killed her. Now, you and I, more than likely, I know I haven't to my feeble memory, and I'm pretty sure you haven't as well, you have never been in a position where you could potentially lose your life for standing up for a conviction. Esther was. Now, what is interesting, perhaps in my lifetime or in my children's lifetime, they may. Our culture is becoming increasingly secular. The Bible Belt that was, however you want to define it, is now no more. Uh, we just don't have that culture. and We don't have the moral majority any longer. Our country now is what Europe was perhaps 30 years ago. Europe now is as secular as one can get post-secular even. And um, I don't really see any stopping of it. Now, that's actually not bad news per se because that's just what cultures do. If you study world history, no culture ever just got better naturally. That's the reason why kingdoms fall. That's the reason why cultures dissolve. If Rome was so great, it should still be around, shouldn't it? It's not. If the 
kingdom of the Medes and Persians was so great it would still be around. No. Greeks, no. So cultures come and go. Nations dissolve. You know, I have a... Um, I wouldn't even call it a hobby. I just have a few selected newspapers. I have a New York Times on, from September the 11th, 2001. And I have a copy of my local uh, paper in North Carolina, news, the News and Observer, um, dated January, I forget the date, 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. If the Soviet Union was so great, it should still be around, right? The reason why it's not so much bad news for us is because as I prayed just a moment ago, our Great Commission never changes no matter which culture we find ourselves in. But I have also found that in cultures that have struggled the most, their worship and their following of Jesus is all the more passionate. So here you have Esther who is... Going to be fa- she's in a, in a very difficult circumstance. There's no, no two ways about it. In a culture that is not friendly to Yahweh. And she's got to stand up for what is right. There are two big movements within this text. The first movement is Esther approaching the king and the, the events thereof. And then the second half is going to be Haman... And King Xerxes' response to what Esther did. So let's look at these two paragraphs and and learn some lessons about how the practice of spiritual disciplines... And what do I mean by spiritual disciplines? I'm talking about the things that that you are expected to do as a believer on on a regular basis. Maybe even daily, but most certainly a regular basis. Prayer, reading and meditating the scriptures, scripture memorization, uh fasting, um, journaling, uh, that, that certainly is, I consider one that that's very, very helpful. That is, you know, writing out, you know, God's journey and, and, and your journey of following him, corporate worship, all of those things that, that strengthen your identity in, in Jesus. Those that are spiritual disciplines, the practice of them will help you to trust the direction of God. So let's begin here in verse one. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the royal throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Have you ever watched a movie and then that tense moment, you hear the music and it's like that sustained note. You're, you're, what's going to happen? And it's like, boom, you know, this was it. I, I wish that our English language was more dramatic to paint the picture of what was going on here. Um, it's not that it's brief. It's just, it's very simple. To read it, and I can promise you this was not a simple situation. She could have died. But notice how the writer 
contrasts Esther versus the king. If you look in these first two verses, you have Esther who says, you know what? All I can do is put on my robe. I'm just going to be who I'm going to be. I cannot be anything less than the queen, but I also cannot be anything more. I'm just going to be me. She put on her royal robes and that's it. That's all that we know about the way that she was presenting herself. The next thing we see was only a location. What does she do? It says that she stood in the inner court of the king's palace, meaning she stood a considerable distance, I'm sure, but she stood in direct line of the king's sight. But notice how it it develops the king's scenario a lot more than Esther. What does it say about the king? Well, it mentions the palace in verse 1, king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance. I mean, it's all about the king and and the splendor of where he is. Verse 2, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor. That's a God thing right there. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter, meaning whatever he saw, whatever come upon his heart and his mind, he decided right then and there, I probably shouldn't kill this one. So holding out the scepter, he would have held it out, you know, just kind of at an angle, just something like this and held it out. And she approached, she knew that that was her invitation to approach. So she comes and does what? It was the uh, cultural and traditional gesture, gesture, excuse me, to touch that tip of the scepter. That's her receiving. That's her receiving the, 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 the favor of the king. Verse four, the king said to her, what is it? And notice he calls her queen Esther. What is it? Queen Esther, what is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. Now, was this a cultural thing? Some writers would say yes. In other words, when the king asked her, okay, what is it? What do you want? Any request? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. What was he? Was he bluffing? Some commentators say, yeah, he, he was, bl- it was just a, it was just a, Kind gesture. It's kind of like us saying, hi, how are you doing? When we really don't care how you were doing because, you know, we're afraid of the 10 minute speech about, you know, everything. That, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sure all of us mean it whenever we say, hi, how are you doing? You know, but uh, what was it? Well, it's funny that we have this same request mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. In Mark chapter 6, you can turn the keep your keep your finger there. And Esther, and you turn over to Mark chapter six. King Herod has an issue with John the Baptist. You may remember this from Sunday school or hearing a sermon about this. In Mark chapter six, verse twenty one, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. 
For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? She said, Ask for the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry, because, uh, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Does that sound like literal or figurative language to you? It sounds like to me it's going to be more literal. So was Xerxes really going to offer well, here's what may be safer to say. I'm pretty sure Esther would have never asked for up to half the kingdom. So whatever she was going to ask, the king was going to grant. Do you see the difference there? Yes, he would have probably been serious. It's, it's kind of like saying to someone, and, and I always thought this was funny. When I was a kid growing up, I would be my mom and dad visiting friends or whatever. And you get ready to leave. And, and what do you say? Well, you might as well come home and go with us. That was just a traditional thing. My wife and I have always joked. What if that family said, okay, let me go pack a bag real quick. And I'm headed. You'd be, no. You say it because you want to be kind. And, and most certainly that generosity would turn into a reality if need be. But you also say it kind of knowing that they would have never replied with, okay, I'm going to go home with you. Okay. What was, what's funny is um, uh, we're, we're mentioned uh, Brother James Corbett, a longtime pastor and longtime friend of ours. I did that to them. They had uh, two daughters round about my age. They came for a visit. I will never forget this. My mom and dad remember it vividly just as well as I do. They were leaving. They said, won't you come on and go with us? I said, okay. Now I'm about five or six years old. I'm going to go. And I did. They let me go home with them. And I was going to spend a night, but my mom and dad said no. And, and uh, it, was, it was kind of a funny thing. Now, that's the situation going on here. What did she say? Well, verse four, she said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman, Haman, what's he got to do with anything? That's Esther knows. King is kind of oblivious to this request. Let the king and Haman come today for a feast that I have prepared for the king. Not for the king and Haman. But I've just prepared it for the king, but I want you to bring Haman. That's a literary clue that something is not quite right. Verse 5, then the king said, well, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, she knows she's already has, right? And if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman 
Come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow. I will do as the king said. All right, so let's break this down really quickly. First of all, this is a banquet that even in Persian culture, it was just for royalty. For her to include Haman was only a gracious act on her behalf. This was not something regularly practiced. But you know Haman. Haman, so far as we have seen in the text, is very full of himself. So you can imagine what he thought or what would have been going through his mind as he was getting ready at home talking to his bride and saying, you won't believe this. I got invited to dine with the king and the queen. Really? Yeah. I mean, today I got to go put on my best, you know, clothes and robe and everything. I got to get ready, slick my hair. I'm going to get ready for this. Have a good time. Because it was not a practice for this to be done regularly. When one accepted the invitation to come to a royal feast, as Haman did, a normal person would have realized they're just, they're going to eat, but they're really just an observer. You know? It's kind of like me talking about the time I met uh, Margaret Thatcher. True story. I met Margaret Thatcher, former prime minister of England in Nashville, Tennessee, worked at a hotel. I was a valet. I met all sorts of famous people coming in and out. It was great. I met Margaret Thatcher. She was speaking at Vanderbilt University right across the street. Wonderful. People say, how was she? Was she cool and everything? Well, when I say meet, I actually mean I came as far as from here to Ms. Velma from her. Because between me and Ms. Velma, there were about 50 British SAS, <laughs> Highway Patrol, FBI, Secret Service. I saw her head bobbing through the crowd. But I call that meeting her. Haman, he, he was not royalty. He had really no exclusive right to even be there. So you know what this is doing to his ego. It's inflating it dramatically. He's thinking he is equal. I like the way one commentator mentioned how, how he just, you know, he, he would have assumed himself equal with the king and queen, but he most definitely was not. And so we're left with this, we're, we're left hanging. Esther, Esther, what did you want? I want you to come back for another meal. I want you to come back. And let's eat again. We'll get, matter of fact, we're going to do it tomorrow. So if you'll wait about 24 hours from now. Now this, this is a great strategy. Esther had prepared this time from three days of spiritual preparation. She had time to commune with the Lord. To know what to do. This was her plan all along. She did not. She did not put them off a day longer. Because she didn't know what to do. She put them a, a, off a day longer. Because they're going to have 24 more hours. To figure out. To think. To stew over. To do whatever. Now look at verse 
9. Haman went out of that day joyful and glad of heart. Oh, don't you know that he was joyful and, and glad of heart? But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions in which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited back to her house, right? We're going to be with the king eating. Verse 13. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hung upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. The idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. We don't see anything about Esther through the close of this chapter. But we definitely see Haman's response. This in and of itself is its own lesson. I, I probably should have just you know, stopped at verse uh, 8, but there's some things to be, to be brought out that are just too important connecting with his experience with Esther thus far. Here is a man who is so full of himself. Uh, he let's 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 kind of make let's make Haman a good guy for a moment. He has nothing to complain about. If you look at the text, he's got it made. He's, he's got the ear and the authority of the king. Remember, the, 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 the king lent him his signet ring. He's got the ear of the king. He just dined with the queen and the king. He's going to do it all over again tomorrow. This guy has nothing to complain about. What was his one issue? Mordecai. One dude that would not bow. This says something to us and should speak to us about the one person in our life that doesn't do what we like for them to do. But if we step back and we look at the big picture of all that God has done and is doing, you mean to tell me we're going to let one little puny individual ruin the whole thing? Look at what he said here. Verse 11, Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, the promotions. He just, he, he, he was going through the mental trophy room. He was just bragging up himself. Look at me. Look at all that has happened. But verse 13, yet everything that has happened, this is, this is a Chris Woodard version. Everything that has happened doesn't mean a thing. Because that knucklehead Mordecai 
And as long as he's living, I will never have peace. What a fragile state Haman was in. What a a fragile place psychologically Haman was in. To let one individual. But you know something? You and I have had our Haman moments, haven't we? We've had an awesome day, an awesome week at work. We've, you know, just Lord's been good to us. She's just kind of had an exceptional week or, or just, you know, some period of time, whatever you want it to be. And that one person gets under your skin. That you, you let that one person be the thorn in your flesh. I've done it. It's happened to me. I hope I've never been the thorn in someone's flesh that would cause them to be that way. But And then, just as soon as he kind of gets over that, here's his wife. She says, why don't you... Um, oh, and, and all of his friends... You see, people who have weak psychologies have to be surrounded with people to pat them on the back. Haman's conviction alone wasn't enough for him. Here's what you do. 50 cubits high. I want you to build the gallows. His wife and friends said to Haman, do you know how high 50 cubits is, by the way? I'll tell you, 75 feet. You know how high 75 feet is? Long way. <laughs> Ladder 20, Rocky Mountain Fire Department, is a 75-foot aerial. I've been at the top of it. It's a long way down. I'm a big guy standing here right in front of you, but 75 feet in the air, you you get small. Zeresh says, you build it that tall and you hang them on it. What happens when something is 75 feet tall? People see it. You see the news report about the big Ikea sign that's going to be built. You know, there's an Ikea coming to Jacksonville. And the, the um, big sign that they're going to put up is like twice as large as what's normally allowed. I think maybe even bigger, maybe in three times the size. But in any event, it's way larger. And the, the powers that be have allowed it because they think, well, it's appropriate for, for what's happening, where it is, blah, blah, blah. And you drive down the road and you're going down the interstate, you're hungry. What do you look at? You see those big golden arches above the tree line. You know, the big sign. I mean, you put things up for people to see. He's wanting to make an example out of Mordecai. But notice greatest illustration of of Haman's self-centeredness comes when his wife said, in the morning, Tell the king. Don't ask. You tell the king. To have Mordecai hanged upon it. 
What audacity. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. I explained to you several weeks ago about the procedure of this manner of impalement slash hanging. I would not have an appetite after witnessing something like that. It shows the utter disregard for human life. Like I said, like I said, this whole paragraph right here, it's its own lesson, but the text ends with the idea of pleasing Haman. Without even asking the king, he had the gallows made. I don't need his permission. I'm just going to do it. Just going to do it. Well, I said at the beginning that the, the rule is to the, the, that the regular practice of the spiritual disciplines will help you to trust God. How do we see this illustrated? Let me give you three things to consider. Number one, spiritual disciplines prepare you for hard decisions. Spiritual disciplines will prepare you for hard decisions. Esther spent days, plural, getting herself ready for what she was thinking could be death. Standing before the king, unannounced, uncalled for, unsummoned, un-everything. I'm going to go and just stand before him. I'm going to break every royal rule on the books to get the king's attention. You don't do that unless you are spiritually prepared. And trust me when I say, just if you don't like anything I've ever taught you, please accept this. There is no substitute for your personal responsibility to practice spiritual disciplines. I am not that good of a pastor. No man is. It is your sovereign duty. That's why we as Baptists have held for centuries the teaching, the doctrine, as it were, of the priesthood of the believer. You do not need me to go to Jesus for atonement of sin or for forgiveness like the Catholics do to their priest. It is between you and Jesus alone. You do not grow unless you're practicing spiritual disciplines. And let me throw this out. Just I always like to have an opportunity where I can offend, and this is going to be it. I've been in this game long enough. I can tell within about a five-minute conversation who practices spiritual disciplines and who doesn't. It is that plain and obvious. By the way, that, that, that goes for the pastors too. You can tell. 
It's your responsibility. Esther would have not been able to do the hard stuff. And I'm telling you, I know we pray for blessings. We pray for this. We pray for an anointing. But listen, if we are not positioning ourselves with the Lord and spending the time with Him that's necessary, what, 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 in, what makes us think that He would want to bless us to do great and mighty things when we're not ready to do it? We're not prepared. May I suggest that one of the hindrances of growth in the local church may be our unwillingness to surrender fully to the sovereignty of the Lord in our life and to pursue Him daily? Why would He want this place to explode when we can't even follow Him on our own? When we get so concerned with ourselves and we become so self-absorbed and, 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 and so me-centered and, and our salvation and you-centered in your salvation, why in the world will we expect the Lord to increase us? If I were God, I wouldn't. Esther had spent a considerable amount of time to do really two things. And the first of them was to stand before the king. The second is what we'll talk about next week, her actual request. Number two, spiritual disciplines prevent us from acting in haste. Spiritual disciplines prevent us from acting in haste. I'm telling you, there's nothing like some good old-fashioned Scripture reading and prayer that will slow me down. And I can promise you, I need to be slowed down, especially with my mouth sometimes. Anybody get in trouble with their mouth from time to time? Amen. I didn't ask you to raise your hands. Come on. just but Yeah, I'll raise both, okay? But nothing will slow me down. Can, can I tell you something else? That's one of the big indicators. Empty wagons make the loudest noise. You ever heard that one? Okay, I'm telling you, when we are not full of Jesus, we're full of ourselves, and we make more noise when we are full of ourselves and when we're full of Jesus. Notice the dichotomy. Notice how Esther, you see how Esther acted, but now did you notice how the two boys handled it? What do we read about Xerxes after the banquet, after the feast? We didn't hear much, did we? we? We don't know what he did. The focus turned now to Haman. She used the flaws of these men to their advantage. Xerxes, we, we do know that, that Xerxes can be bothered, right? He's, he can be bothered. Haman, oh, she knew. That's why she invited him anyway. She knew how he was going to react. She knew that he was going to be full of himself and he was going to want to exploit, uh, uh, you know, the circumstance here. But Esther also, she knows what Haman... By the way, have you ever thought about... Have you ever had the opportunity to stare your enemy in the eye right across the dinner table and, and, and keep your mouth shut? That's what Esther did. And she's going to have to do it again. 
that takes some incredible restraint. Haman, on the other hand, just his world revolves around himself and Mordecai. But when we go to the Lord regularly, we spend time with him. I'm, I'm telling you, you grow. You grow. Do you know what happens when you grow? You change. Okay. I, I was I was once ridiculed by another minister uh, uh, friend who ridiculed me for changing my viewpoints on some things doctrinally. Specifically on salvation. I just do not believe that the scripture teaches you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that the scripture teaches us that eternal life is anything but eternal. It took me a long time to kind of grasp that and understand it. I was chided for it. Ridiculed for it. But when we practice the spiritual disciplines, you will change. You will change, you will change in some doctrines. You will grow. You will know more about God and His Word. And, and your life will, uh, will be much better off for it. Haman, he was... He acted and his wife and his friends all acted so hastily. Number three, and we're done. Spiritual disciplines position us to see the bigger picture. Spiritual disciplines position us to see the bigger picture. Esther stood back kind of spiritually and, and, and mentally, as it were. She was able to see, Lord willing, where this was going to go. She knew the king. She knew Haman, but she had time to think about how to ask the right questions. And I, I can't underscore that e- e- enough. That's important for a believer. And it's important in circumstances like this. It's important in conflict resolution to ask the right questions. It's especially important in witnessing to someone. She knew and she had planned out what she needed to say to the king. And lest we forget, the way to a man's heart was through his stomach. And the first thing she was going to do to get them ready is feed them well. There ain't nothing like a king's feast. Men typically make the best decisions on a full stomach. I'm waiting for a article to come out in Psychology Today or some other journal of emotional health to talk about the concept of being hangry. Do you know what being hangry is? It's a combination of hungry and angry. When you get hungry, you get angry. You can't think straight. I love my daddy, but he's like that. He gets angry. My wife can attest to it. She knew what she was going to do. She knew her plan. She was able to see the bigger picture. Listen, Xerxes couldn't even get past Mordecai. As soon as he walked home, that's all he could see. But I'm telling you, the more that you spend time with God, you won't know his mind per se. I mean, that's that's just kind of like beyond our reach, no matter what we do. But you'll start seeing a bigger picture. You start getting a good sense of, of who God is and, and what He wants to do with your life. 
So next week we're going we're gonna to see a very radical change in direction of this story. This is where the story gets, it's already exciting to me, but next week it just it starts getting really intense and almost just fun to watch. You just wish you could kind of be there in, in real life. So I'm looking forward to that. But I hope that you've learned tonight. I hope that you've been reminded in, in the times that you just don't see God moving and maybe you're waiting on the Lord, but but a decision has to be made or you're, you're waiting on the Lord. You don't have a direct answer. There's not like a, a direct Bible verse to address it. What do we do in those times? Learning to see God's unseen hand. Use those spiritual disciplines to trust God. I'm telling you. I don't know what you really think about this book, the Bible. But here's what I absolutely know beyond the shadow of a doubt. This is the, capital T-H-E, it is the Word of God. It doesn't contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. It is completely trustworthy and reliable. Furthermore, it is His full and final revelation to us. And when I talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, I'm talking about in every aspect, it is sufficient for every circumstance in life. Not 95%, but every circumstance in life. That's one of the reasons why I'm so convicted and convinced uh, over the practice of biblical counseling. During my time in ministry, I have had uh, the pleasure, the distinct pleasure of working with people with severe emotional disorders. And the Word of God addresses it. Children on the uh, ADHD spectrum, the Word of God addresses it. Bipolar, the Word of God addresses it. Overwhelming grief, the Word of God addresses it. Doctrine, the Word of God addresses it. There's nothing left untouched. We must only trust the Word that has been given to us. And when God seems far away, and and there are times when He seems a little far away, but we can trust His Word. We can trust Him. And when you trust Him, I'll never forget what my mentor told me. He gave me five, uh, I call them five inalienable rules of ministry. And the final two, trust Him and then obey Him. Trust Him and obey Him. Esther is about to become a Savior for her people because she trusted the Lord and she obeyed. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcboulogne.org.